Greetings and welcome to Fresh Text. Fresh Text is a weekly podcast when a couple pastor scholars dig into the Word of God using a seasonally appropriate scripture passage drawn from the Revised Common Lectionary. We hope that it will be enjoyable and edifying for all and especially equipping for pastors or teachers who are working on sermons or lessons in the upcoming weeks. I'm your host, John Drury. I teach systematic theology and spiritual formation for Wesley Seminary at Indiana Wesleyan University. My guest this week is Safia Fasua. Uh, Safia is a relatively regular guest here on the podcast, and I'm always look forward to a chance to to discuss scripture with her. Uh, she's an ordained minister in the United Methodist Church, though she has a whole range of uh, ecclesial experiences uh, throughout um her life and ministry and was a, uh, as a recently retired, uh, as of just a bit ago, professor at Wesley Seminary, um, alongside me. So, uh, but she has agreed to, to, uh, continue to show up on the show from time to time, uh, even though she's entering retirement. So we are so honored, uh, to be in the, in the yes column when, of course, she's uh, wisely choosing to say no to lots of things. So I am so honored that she is uh, uh, willing to still show up because I love having a chance to, to talk scripture with her. Our text this week is Exodus chapter 1, verse 8 through chapter 2, verse 10. Exodus 1, verse 8 through chapter 2, verse 10. Make sure to subscribe if you're not already so that you never miss an episode. And as you're listening, if you enjoy the show, hit the share button on your podcast player app of choice to pass this show along to others who may benefit as well. Thanks for listening and enjoy this conversation with Sophia. Well, shall we? Thanks for thanks for talking shop for a little while. <laughs> oh, that's okay. That's okay. So we're Exodus. Um... Yeah, Exodus chapter one, mm-hmm. uh, beginning with verse eight uh, through eight, two two ten. Is it two ten? That's what I okay. have. Yep. Okay. Yep. And we can. All right. Would you be willing to read? I would be glad to read. Go for it. All righty. Exodus one, beginning at verse eight. Then a new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Python and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with hard labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. And all their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shipra and Pua, when you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it's a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. 
Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwife answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before we can, before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Now, a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. And the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. And there ends the reading. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, we come with humility and with boldness before your throne of grace, asking for your guidance in this hour. We come humbly because we trust that this is your word spoken through the prophets and handed on, preserved and handed on to us for us to bear, both receiving and handing on, bearing the word of God for the people of God. And so we're humbled before uh, the truth of your word and the story that it tells us this crucial moment of the origin the origin story of your servant Moses so precious to your heart and so pivotal in the history of your covenant people so humbled before the word of God we come before you also boldly mm-hmm. boldly wondering what it is Lord that you would have us to hear and say in this time uh, before this text, boldly questioning and probing the strange things it puts forth and the the trauma that it can uh, trigger and uh, boldly daring to ask that you would grant to us a fresh word 
in, with, and under this ancient word. We ask this boldly yet humbly in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Uh, so, Sophia, what's, uh, what's on your mind and heart as we read this text again for the first time? <laughs> <laughs> um, this is a sobering text because it, it tells us that human nature has not changed. There's a statement that, that floats around my community. The more things change, the more things stay the same. And yeah. this is thousands of years ago, but it could have been written yesterday. You know, we, we, we read, especially the Old Testament, to learn about ourselves as human beings. Often people skip the Old Testament because they say they're not talking about Jesus anyway. And of course, they've missed a lot of things there. But uh, we read the Old Testament to learn about ourselves and to learn about God's dealings with humanity. And the thing we learn about ourselves, you know, there's these three questions that we often use in Bible studies when we're, when we're writing, you know, big studies for large groups or whatever. What did I learn about myself? What did I learn about God? What did I learn about how God deals with human beings? And um, I'll skip over the first one, but what did I learn about God and what did I learn about how God deals with human beings is, is a, a, a good question to use to approach this text. And what did I learn about myself if I talk about collective humanity? The more things change, the more they stay the same. We are always afraid of other people. It seems to be quite prevalent. You see it at the um, Jacob's Well in Samaria. There's this otherness that goes on with people we don't know, the ones we don't normally eat with or we don't understand. There, we, we, we human beings keep doing this. And we have this brilliant model in, in, in Old Testament history for us to look at of another instance where this happened and how God felt about it. So if we, if we want to know how God feels about othering, all we have to do is look at this text. Look at this text and look at the subsequent, you know, book of Exodus that goes on. Uh, you know, so this is a difficult text to read today. We are taping this in the summer, in the summer of uh, COVID and in the summer of what some people are calling the summer of reckoning. And um, mm -hmm. it's a difficult test text to read right now because there are too many similarities to say that this is an accident. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a strong proponent of using the lectionary. And I have found in my 30 years plus of using the lectionary as a past, in pastoral ways, that the texts always come around when we need them. Yeah. So yeah. I don't want to say, I, I believe in the inspiration of the Bible. I won't say the inspiration of the lectionary. But I do believe that God is at work in even how these texts were ordered. Because I remember being in the pulpit the, the, the Sunday after 9-11. And the texts, I can't even remember what they were now, were absolutely perfect for what people needed to hear from God and say to God on the Sunday after 9-11. I was in Jersey 
in, 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 in sight of the Twin Towers burning. And I've been around through other uh, global catastrophes in, in the pulpit and seeing that the lectionary works. And so the, the fact that this text is coming up right about now is a reminder that um, God has an opinion that, that maybe mm. is yet to be heard in all of this as well. Well, I'll say just about the lectionary. It's, it's, uh, <laughs> I mean, as you know, I don't know if a lot of our listeners know this, but often when someone's episode drops is when I text them that day and say, Hey, you want to do another? <laughs> um, <laughs> so it's kind of a, it's not very systematic. <laughs> um, and that's what happened a couple weeks ago. And cause we did Genesis 22. Oh, that, that's a difficult text. one too. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. And I, I guess I like to give you the, but, and sometimes just a little behind the curtain for our listeners. Uh, sometimes I'll, when I'm working ahead, I'll throw a couple texts to give people a choice, you know? Mm-hmm. And of course you have a propensity for choosing the, the toughies, which is nice because it takes oh, the yeah. pressure off my other guests. <laughs> it takes it uh, off you. Yeah. <laughs> but sometimes, sometimes I'm just like under the gun and I need a particular, I need a particular week covered. And that's what yes. this was. I, I just text you said, Hey, can you do Exodus one and two with me? Right. Right. And it wasn't a, and it wasn't a matchmake. It wasn't a, I know she'll have something to say about this kind of thing. No, although I the think moment, although the moment I sent it, I was like, well, yeah, yeah, <laughs> this could be fitting. Yeah. So, I mean, that was weighing on me. Uh, we actually were booked. To, I mean, maybe I'm, this is TMI for our listeners, but I, th- I think it's worth talking about the preaching life as much as the, the text before us. Mm-hmm. I mean, we were booked to have this conversation a week ago and right. I was actually grateful for the delay because I don't know. I just, I, I've been sitting with the text, but also like sitting with you as a, as a, as a fellow exegete and a partner in this process, you know? And just kind of holding the whole thought of what this what this could stir up, you know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and my heart was really drawn to so the, especially the opening moment when you talk about you know the, you know they kept having babies they they breed and so we're threatened by the yeah. growth of yeah. this other group and yeah. and then the next beat of the story of, of Shifra and Pua. Yeah. Somehow I was really drawn to them and I don't know entirely why a part of it is growing up with this text, not hearing about them. <laughs> oh. <laughs> not, not that it was a race that just oh, all yeah. the energy was around Moses and, and the, the oh, family, no, no, the no. little family for we heard me. about the midwives in my community. Quite That's a bit. what I wondered. Yeah. I wondered if these were important they were the first sermon I ever heard focused on them was when I was in, in seminary. I hadn't oh, heard a sermon that focused on them ever. Oh yeah. Oh, and, yeah. and I they're, had a feeling heroes. you might have thoughts about that. Yeah. Uh, is it heroes or sheroes? I mean, I, you know, yeah, right. but, but, but they, they are heroic women from where I sit because uh, they defied, um, they, they risked their lives. They could have died for, for disobeying the, you know, the Pharaoh's orders, they risked their lives because they feared God. And, and that's a very clear part of the text because the midwives feared God, they would not kill those babies. And it seems that we need to hear this text a little bit more with several debates we're having nationally right now, because these women feared God, they would not. 
And so theologically, this is a landmine text because Mm -hmm. Christians are supposed to obey the law. You know, they disobeyed the law. And why did they disobey the law? Because they feared God. You know, so it gets us into a lot of arguments that we could have among ourselves right now. But no, the midwives are valorized because they would not kill the babies. And God honored them and gave them families of their own. Um, Again, the text is difficult because we want to go about our lives as though God does not have an opinion (laughs) about what we do down here. As long as we didn't uh, murder or steal or whatever, you know, we, we want to go along as though God does not have an opinion. And yet, if you go deeply into spiritual formation, you'll find that God has a thought about every thought that we have. And this, this, this text snaps us back to the grid on that one to remind us that all that we do, all that we think, all that we say is in the sight of God. And so somehow what the Pharaoh thought, what he feared, and how he acted on those are recorded for us. This is a fear text. Yeah, oh, that's that's really good, that fear theme, because the Egyptians are afraid. Yeah. Um, and, and how ignorance is connected to fear because of the- Ignorance you know, is connected a, to fear. Uh, a Pharaoh who didn't know Joseph, right? So there's that that disconnection of a personal relationship with the past is severed, and then and then in that ignorance, and then in their growth and their otherness, the fear is stirred up, and then the alternative kind of fear, proper fear, the fear of God, which is proper fear of God. And a lot of times we think, oh, we want to move away from fearing God to some other kind of relation, and and there can be an element of truth in that from Paul's Mm -hmm. letters, but but uh, we can miss that how liberating the fear of God is because to fear God is to fear no man is kind of the, that's right. That's right. right. And at least in my tradition, the 19th century, there was a common theme in the movement of women preachers to have the, a big, they would talk about the sin of the fear of man. Right. And it had that. And, and, and it was very convenient there. They were attuned to the double meaning of man as humans, but also like boys and how boys too. that overcoming of the fear of man was often the key to unleashing the lips of the prophetess. And that kind of thing is a big thing in, in the stuff I've studied in my own tradition. And I see that here, these, these two women, Shifra and Pua in their fear of God. Yes makes it so they can overcome the fear of the fear of Pharaoh. That would be an understandable fear. Uh, And the fear of death, because this is a ruthless, you know, as the text unfolds, you see that he's ruthless. He does not value human life. He doesn't value human life, especially of those Israelites. Mm -hmm. And they, they were placing themselves in mortal danger in order to honor God and what they knew and understood about God. And you then you see God's God as the giver of life. I mean, it's only although the, the there's a lot of references to to God in in the dialogue and the thought patterns and implicit divine providence. But the only explicit statement that I could find in our passage today of a divine action 
when you were mentioning earlier what God thought. I mean, mm-hmm. we can we can infer it, but there's mm-hmm. an explicit reference in verse 20. So God dealt well with the midwives. Yes. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives fear God, he gave them family. So it's the only verb sort of attributed to God is exactly of a divine intervention. All the rest, and, and it's a direct contrast then, as you're highlighting from Pharaoh as this kind of false divinity right. that's as is threatened right. by, and so he's taking life away and God is giving life to midwives who may very well have been either past their years or whatever, but for some, exactly, you know, this exactly, is, exactly. This is seen as, a, as, as their own families, families of their own is the reward that God gives. So it's interesting because in the whole Moses sequence, it doesn't say that God was like, hiding in the bushes, moving the basket around. I mean, we can infer that, no, but no, 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 it's no, interesting no. that the narrator decides to tell us that God, God took note of the fear, the proper fear that these women had, exactly. these midwives had. Exactly. Then, then there's another element here. First of all, let me back up and say that if you read James Cone and other uh, black theologians from the sixties uh, and seventies, you know, the later theologians, develop their theologies in different ways. But Cone's initial, uh, in, in For My People, he used the Exodus narrative, the entire narrative, as a signature narrative for a certain group of people. And in, in, in making that narrative for, for, for people of African descent, um, we already know that the Jews claim this as their narrative. So we, we claim some kinship with Jewish um, uh, people because we share a common narrative. Now, to take this more into African or Africana culture, there's a figure in the culture, in, in, the, in the folk literature, called the trickster. And the trickster is usually small and insignificant and seemingly powerless and yet prevails against larger things. And so the Anansi stories are part of, 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 of the trickster stories that I, I encountered serving in Ghana as a missionary there. The Anansi stories, the spider would make a web and tie up a, a, a lion or, or, you know, something. And so it shows this little bitty thing that, that doesn't seem to be able to go against the odds, but yet prevails in, in, in serendipitous ways. So now looking at what Moses's mother did. She took her baby. Now, okay, when the boy babies were found, uh, they they were thrown to the crocodiles. They were thrown in the river. She took her baby and she threw him in the river. The very she, she didn't hide him out in the in the field. She didn't hide him, you know, in another, you know. She she threw him in the river. If you find my baby, you're gonna throw him in the river. I'm gonna throw him in the river. <laughs> but she threw him in the river in an ark, you know or an archetypal thing that's like an ark because she's got this yeah. little basket and she's used the tar and the pitch and all the other, you know, it's almost like a description of, of building the ark later. And, and um, she throws him in the river and then she gets to nursing. And so if this story is told on another continent, it becomes an Nazi story or yeah. a, a trickster story that God brought a serendipity about that was so ironic that it couldn't be accidental. Yeah. And that is the hand of God there in the trickster. And yeah, fittingly, the name Israel that names yeah. this people. Yes. 
yes. is the new name given to Jacob, who is so clearly the trickster. The trickster, you know. In, in the Genesis narrative that we were right. studying earlier this summer. Yeah. Um, Lots of cultures have Yeah, so in some stories. ways, you have a whole little sort of microcosm. And, and the whole story of, of the people of Israel is this small nation overcoming yeah. the great nations the barley loaf right. i mean you know it's always it's always considered itself an itty bitty thing and so this itty bitty thing this this mm-hmm. woman first of all she's down on the, on the bottom of the, of the power totem pole anyway not only is she a woman she's an israelite woman and she takes that baby that she's hiding and she does the very thing that the, that the, that the soldiers would do if they found him throw him in the river and this time god prevails it's got to be the hand of god and so when yeah. this story is told on the African continent, the trickster stories immediately come to mind because they're part of the, the children's stories still, you know, in the land. And the fact that God prevails against the odds. So this is an overcoming story. It was meant to be a horrible, horrible story. But this actually turns into an overcoming story. Hmm. First of all, because of two midwives and then secondly, because even when we've run out of options and put the baby in the river myself, then God takes over. And, and the Pharaoh's daughter, which is protection, because if some woman, you know, somewhere right. else among the Egyptians had found that baby, they'd say, kill that, that's a Hebrew child, mm-hmm. you know, look at the blanket, look at the child, you know. But because it's the Pharaoh's daughter, there's protection there. And she and 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 the, so it's it's serendipitous and yet it's God sighting to see that Moses ends up being raised in the house of Pharaoh after being nursed by his own mama. Yeah, God elects the the weak things of the world to shame the strong, right? Right. The foolish right. to shame the wise, and that's the real the real wisdom. Let's take a quick break and come back and keep digging in. All right. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text with my guest, Sophia Fasua. And we're looking at uh, Exodus chapter 1, verse 8 through 2, verse 10. So, Sophia, you mentioned a little bit earlier about um, Cohn's classic early book, For My People. Right. And I wondered, just with your experience, knowledge, background, and and for our audience in all of its uh, places that they operate, it might be helpful to just hear from you, just to riff on that a little bit. Tell us a little bit about um, what you learned from that book and then just the broader tradition of the way ex- Exodus is interpreted in ah, the African-American mm-hmm. tradition. Right, right. Um, yeah. Let, let, me, um, let me preface my comments with a, a memory of something that Howard Thurman said. And I know you're probably familiar with Howard Thurman. He was the dean of the chapel at, at Boston University, uh, probably the first African-American to occupy that position. But he was also more of a spiritual director type. His book, uh, Jesus and the Disinherited, was the one uh, prayer book or 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 spiritual book that Martin Luther King carried in his suitcase all across the trail wherever he went. And so Howard Thurman was a mentor to him 
Uh, he wasn't the fiery civil rights person. He was a mystic. He was a prayer prayer person, a mystic, and he wrote lots and lots of devotional books. You can find them, you know, probably a lot of them are still in print. He has a foundation that keeps his work alive. But he remembers being on a train with a man, and, and he train dates him because he would have been in the 1950s, pretty prominent, 50s and 60s and whatnot. He was on a, on a train with a man from India, and the man from India said, how can you, uh, at the time we were called Negroes, how can you Negroes, black people, worship God and be in the condition that you're in here socially, economically, health-wise, all of that. How, how do you reconcile that? And I would counter that this narrative from Exodus and the whole bent of uh, Cone for my people, the liberation movement that, that kind of sprung up from that is really grounded in the suffering and the eventual redemption of the Hebrew people from Exodus. We don't see ourselves as black Hebrews. There is a movement that does that. You know, we don't see ourselves as black Hebrew, but we see ourselves as the spiritual kinfolk of those people in, in Israel. And so when we think about Jesus, first of all, you know, those of us who've been to seminary in the modern era will call him the Christ, you know, but in the community, he's mostly Jesus who has suffered as we have. And so the suffering narratives, that suffering, especially that, that led to this ultimate redemption, three Hebrew boys who uh, in an act of civil defiance, they're, they're captives and they won't eat what's set before them. And it's like, no, this is what we eat here. And they said, no, 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 no. We, we can't be defiled with that. And, and their eventual triumph, even in the lion's den uh, with Daniel and their triumph in the firm, those are the things that are celebrated as uh, principal evidences that God eventually comes. And so in looking at this narrative, you know, and, and they've been there 400 years, 430, depending on the commentary you read, you know, they've been there 400 years. There's problems going on. They've been, they've been persecuted. They're oppressed. Genocide is taking place here. And how do they still hold on to God? How do we still hold on to God? Uh, we have these evidences, and James Cone lifts that up very skillfully that we are the, the people of the Exodus. Again, I'm not claiming we're black Jews. We're saying we have a spiritual kinship with people who suffer. And that part of um, faith in the Africana community is not often uh, understood. It's very rarely lifted up because it's hard to understand. It is a matter of faith. And so I can sit here in this space in 2020, being a child of hope and faith, because I remember the Hebrew midwives and their act of defiance. And so for me, uh, when I look at Jesus, some people talk about him being so nice that he turned the other cheek and all of that. Some of them go to the, to the, to the, the inquisitions that he was having and he never said a mumbling word. But I remember the Jesus who turned over the tables of the money changers. 
I remember the, the, the Jesus who wrote on the dirt when people were asking him about a woman caught in adultery. Some people, you know, we, you know, we use our holy imagination, say he was writing the sins of the accusers in the dirt. And then they walked away and didn't have anything else to say. You know, who knows what was going on there? But I, I remember uh, a Jesus who showed us a God who was defiantly uh, dedicated to, to God's people. And so Cone for me brings that to the forefront, that the, um, the religious backbone of the black community is grounded in belief in a God who may not come when you want him. That's a you know refrain from sermons. May not come when you want him, but he's right on time. So a God who eventually comes, though it may not be in my lifetime, because remember, they've got 400 years. May not be in my lifetime, may not be in my son's lifetime, but God is eventually coming with all redemption in his hands. So, so for me, that's what Cone captures. He captures that, and it's not a pie-in-the-sky, by-and-by type of a theology, but one that seizes and takes, takes hold of what God has promised and uh, reminds people of who we are because God said so and is defiant even to death if necessary. And I think that is the faith that fueled the civil rights movement. What frightens me now is that younger generations have not had that same exposure and may not have that same resilience. They say that you've been placated and then they go into this, the opioid of the masses, you know, kind of conversation. And they, that, that's completely off track. No, we believe in a God who comes eventually comes. God's time is not our time. God sees the circle of the earth in all time at all times. You know, it, it's, it's, um, it's, it's one of those mysteries to be explained, but it's the thing that keeps me sane today. Because not only is it eventually coming, I keep getting glimpses of it here and there in my own life, in big ways, in little ways. And so because of these little victories and some bigger victories in my own personal life, because of the Holy Writ that has all of these examples to me um, of, of people who stayed the course and held on to God and had what they needed, I am inspired to hold on and to hold on to my convictions, to my faith, to, to, to what I believe about righteousness and, and not to go to the dark side as a start. Star Wars people might say, you know, so, 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 so Cone puts that all together for me. He tries to articulate in uh, cogent ways. And remember when he's writing for my people, he's writing to the Academy on behalf of my people. Yeah. It yeah. wasn't until was later me, in his yeah. life that he began to write to us. Mm -hmm. And one of our, one of our criticisms of for my people is who you're talking to, yeah. you know? not so to my people for my people. Yeah, right, no, I mean, it's right. a lot of his early work is written. I mean, as you know, I mean, he wrote his dissertation on Karl Barth. And mm -hmm. so I've been exposed to like, I, I think I connect with Cone on a whole bunch of levels. Right. And one of them is that his first three, four books all the way in a way, all the way through God of the oppressed. That's kind of the transitional one to that right. audience right. thing. But he he's laying out he's answering that question for white folk to to help them right. see that there is a theologic here 
right. to this to this um, identification with the Exodus people of God. Exactly. That there's a even if it hasn't been laid out in a systematic theology, he's like he's like I'm going to do that for you. you know? Exactly. Black theology Black theology of liberation is literally just the chapter titles are the same that you'd see in any systematic theology. It just lays right. it out doctrine right. by doctrine. And I think a lot of later, I mean, people around today, I, I bump into a lot of people just thinking, oh, this is sort of baptizing and Christianizing some kind mm-hmm. of secular movement. It's like, no, dude, it's the other way around. It's the other this way is around. a religious movement and a this theologic is a movement, right? A theological the King perspective was grounded in faith. And yep. as I said, Howard Thurman was always in King's suitcase. Wow, I didn't actually know that. I I love Thurman. We just read, we just used Thurman in a in a course this spring. Uh, extensive, a bunch of books by him. Okay, Jesus and the, the Disinherited was in his suitcase all the time. That little cardboard suitcase or yep. whatever that was that King carried around. He always kept a copy of Jesus and the Disinherited around there. And the 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 the, the guiding question for Thurman and Jesus and the Disinherited is. What do people do when their backs are against the wall? What do people of faith do when yeah, their yeah. backs are against the wall? Now we see that in our, our text for today. What yes, do people do. Of, what what do people of faith do when their backs are against the wall? They they uh, figure out ways to subvert, and subverting is 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 is, is a shovel kind of a word to go under and, and unearth and turn it up. You know, they they turn things upside down in what seems to be an established and predictable and manageable order. And so the midwives are subverting. They're digging in. They're turning it up, and then they're they they walked away from it. They managed to live through it. And then the same thing with 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 uh, Moses' mother. You know, you you said that you if you find my baby, you're going to throw him in the Nile. I throw him in the Nile, and yeah. I throw him in the Nile in the name of my God. I'm just putting him in there. And this whole typology with the ark, you know, the pitch and the tar and the boat and the you know, and she pitched it within and she did. You know, this is an this is an ark salvation type of a typology. All of that's going on. And God is, 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 is so hilarious because it's not a regular uh, uh, Egyptian woman that finds the child and tries to hide him. It's not the soldiers that find the child and want to kill him. It's Pharaoh's daughter, the only one who can stand up to him and get away with it. Yeah, so that he becomes part of that household that becomes yes. the, the chief deity that's defeated at the 10th plague, as it were, you know. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So, so, so you've got all of this going on. And so it conditions you to have eyes for God sightings in the ordinary. Yeah. Uh, what was it? Heather Murray Elkins did the ordinary stuff of life. And she, she did a series of kind of video um, devotions. They might still be up on YouTube where she cites God in the ordinary stuff of life. And so being conditioned to walk with God, seeing God in just even the little things, and then some pretty big ones too, uh, bolsters a faith that cannot be shaken in spite of what I see. Now, faith is the evidence, you know. So, so, unseen. So, yeah. And you're right. And in many ways, God is unseen in the text today. Yeah. There's very few references to God's action, you know, it's, it's, it's hidden. Yes. And that's why it takes eyes of faith to see what's seen here. I, I, I mean, like you said, with things like cone and, and others where it's, 
um, you can you can try to make the case, right? I mean, you know, he, he's the more rationalist end of the uh, end of the 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 the, the pool uh, mm-hmm. of of black intellectuals. He he's he's making the case, right? But even he will say, I mean, there's a reason. I mean, this is part of what he ran up against, and part of why he turned. Uh, this is not the whole story, but it's part of the at least the intellectual hi- history for Cohn of why he turned to speak to his people instead of about four. Yeah, because at the end of the day, if if you don't have the eyes of faith to see the Exodus story as our story, mm-hmm. <laughs> then you know maybe the this is why this is a hermeneutical issue. This is why this is fitting for this middle section of the podcast mm-hmm. where it's like at the end of the day, all the arguments in the world can't get you to see, you know, if we're, if you're already attuned in the eyes of faith to see defiance on behalf of a deity who delivers, then you see the heroism of these women. Yes. Um, Without those eyes, without that faith, this is, these are just women disrupting the social order. (laughs) That's all it is. (laughs) We should go to jail. They're just troublemakers. They're just troublemakers who should go yeah. to jail. But, yeah. it, but, but if you see God who subverts yep. anything that exalts itself against him. Yep. Because, you know, Pharaoh, Ra, that's the sun God. Yep. So what's the 10th plague? He puts out the sun. Yeah. You know, you think that's you? <laughs> yeah. Got this. So, so you see all of this defiance in Exodus, which makes it a favorite place for preachers uh, in the diaspora because you keep seeing these evidences. Not only do you see evidences of the power and the sovereignty of God, you also see evidence of human nature grumbling about the manna and all, you know, all of the other things that, that, that are part of our common life together. But um, yeah, Cone and Exodus and, and the solidarity. When I, I you know, I, I used to do things at synagogues a lot. And in talking with the rabbis and in talking with Jewish women, because sometimes Jewish women would invite me in for a program or as they call it, you know, and it would end up being a, a, a pre. And sometimes I'd go in with Exodus and they'd say, wait, that's our book. And I said, no, it's our book. And then we'd have this wonderful banter <laughs> that goes around because we realized that we found solidarity with the people who suffered. We found solidarity with those who are suffering. And so what does that do for you after theologically you have hooked your, your, your wagon to a star, you know, that, 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 that takes you through the solidarity ground. It also gives you solidarity with others who suffer around you today. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've, I've great yeah. gained that solidarity with those in the text with with people who suffered, with those who were executed, with with Jeremiah who's thrown into a, you know a well, and with, with with all these people who have gone through things on behalf of God, then you look around you and you see those who suffer, and it makes you more likely to rise to the occasion because they are suffering, and this is what we God people do. We we belong to God, and we go after and stand with those who are suffering. So it's it's a natural leap then. Yeah, that's why the some of why the midwives grab me is these midwives may not be may not see them. I mean, if the king of Egypt says to the Hebrew midwives, yeah, right. Um, now these, I, I believe, these are Hebrew names, right? Um, yeah, I think so too. <laughs> but but clearly they are at least um, they're at least they're in a 
perhaps an overused term, but it's helpful here. They're in this liminal space between right, right, Pharaoh's right. power mm-hmm. and and their you know their choice to you know uh, I, I'm inspired by them in many ways to say you know even if I myself am not suffering right that yeah. when I'm asked to you know submit to oppressive powers it's my job to do to no subvert harm. yeah right. do no harm yeah they're between a rock and a hard place i may not be able to deliver no uh but do no harm but yeah. do no harm. I, I won't cause you suffering yeah by by my obedience to somebody who doesn't even like yes it. yeah right. yeah i will not make you suffer over that because divide and conquer has been a strategy from time immemorial, exactly. right? Exactly. To, to, exactly. Oh, well, if you do a little favor for the powerful, then you can be, you know, you, you can have a, have a, have a little bit better life, you know, right. and you right. see God subverting that by saying, no, actually, I'm going to give you children of your own. That's uh, it. That's which, it. Yeah. Well, thanks so, so, so much. Yeah, I, this, I appreciate this is, you. This is a rich section right here. Yeah. To just do some of that larger sort of hermeneutical perspective. So I appreciate it a ton. Yeah. I think I got to admit, like it was occurring to me that like taking the Exodus story mm-hmm. as a kind of anchor, uh, as you know, cause to, to interpret the whole of scripture, it's, it's dangerous to imagine that we, there's some view from nowhere by which we can hold it all together that, mm-hmm. that any, any, any integration of the whole of scripture is going to privilege certain texts as a kind of canon within a canon. And a lot of times people are ashamed of that or apologize for it or try to avoid it. And I, I'm inclined to say, well, be honest about it, own it and, and make the case for why that's, that helps you see things in other texts. Exactly. I feel like when you take Exodus as your kind of anchor, Mm -hmm. the fact is, is this is how, you know, there's a reason why so many women were named Miriam not yes, Mir- exactly, Miriam in the New exactly, Testament, exactly because they, the people, the the people of God in the New Testament, that's how they were reading the Old Testament. Right. They saw themselves as in captivity and needing a new Exodus, right? That's where their minds were, exactly. And exactly. so it helps us read the whole the whole of the scriptures better. So that's a and, and a it anchors us if you if you have an anchor scripture or an anchor uh, part of the Bible that helps you make sense of your own life. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's a presumption. I don't think it's it's sacrilege. It's identification yeah. and grounding in a different kind of way. Yeah, uh, I'd, I'd use the term, it's an entry point, right? I yeah, mean, yeah. It might not be that, you might not be asserting that God decided from time immemorial that this is the best part of the Bible. That's not what you're saying. No, you're simply saying part. that it's this is where- heart. <laughs> this is where me and my people enter in. That's it. But that's through it. that door, get to everywhere else. So if it's to read exactly. this instead of, that's a problem, right? Right. right. But uh, right. so it's like Pentecostals only ever reading Acts is a problem. But it seeing is. the whole it Bible is. through Acts is fine if yes. you can admit that's what you're doing. Exactly. Or L- Lutherans and classically Reformed, everything's through Paul, right? If you okay. can admit that's what you're doing, <laughs> there's something to see because, of course, yeah. he, he's a great interpreter of 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 the prophets. So everyone has an entry point and own that. Although I think the case for the Exodus is pretty strong. (laughs) I think so. (laughs) So it's, it's what converted me to my first exposure to liberation theology was just, you know, in books in college. And and for me, it 
wasn't. It just, again, it seemed like the baptizing of politics, but it was not only having friends of color in seminary, but also through exegesis, through courses Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. the Torah, courses on Matthew that you and I were talking about offline Mm -hmm. with Brian Blunt. It was through recognizing the the, the scriptural and spiritual heart of, yes. of this way of thinking all of a sudden, oh, it just, it all clicked into place. Um, and, and all Cone did catching up ever since. what was happening yep. in pulpits all across black America. That's right. Yeah. All he did was report, but he was reporting it in scholarly language for other people to yep. understand and to stop um, guessing about or projecting right. what was happening in black pulpits and, and, and on the pews. Yeah. So, no, if you want to know what's happening, he says, then I'll tell you, this is what, yeah. what we're doing. This is what we're doing. And I'll use language you understand. Yeah, like let me said, lay it out for you. <laughs> yeah. So, but he finally. Here's the black doctrine of sin, Here's the, <laughs> right. yeah, which isn't how it would have been put. <laughs> right, 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 right. So, no, no, this is, this is, this is good. This is good. Cool. Well, let's take a quick break and come back and explore some sermon starters. All righty. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with my guest, Sophia Fasua, and we are looking at uh, Exodus uh, chapter 1, beginning at verse 8 through chapter 2, verse 10. So this opening salvo in the, the Exodus story. So let's explore some sermon starters. What are some suggestions we could make or ideas that are, even if they're half-baked and we just want to play with them? Where, where, do you, where would you want to go with this if you were preaching on it soon? Well, I think we've already talked about holy defiance. Not just defiance because it didn't suit my temperament or defiance because I didn't feel like it that day, but I really do have a deep conviction that what you've asked me to do is wrong. Mm -hmm. And even if it costs my life, I can't do that. that. That was the midwives and then the holy defiance of Pharaoh's daughter. Before our conversation today, ah. I had not I, I had not focused on the fact that there were two groups of defiant yes. women, almost in conspiracy with one another. Actually, three groups. It's really because three. You got the mama, the mama and the daughter who's standing by the side watching, and her baby brothers in the you know, and and I'm gonna go get my mama, and she's gonna come mm-hmm. back and nurse the baby. You know, so it's almost like there's this big secret, and everybody's in on it. But you've got the the midwives who wouldn't kill him. You've got the mama who wouldn't um, give him up. And, and then when she did give him up, she gave him up in hope. And then you've got Pharaoh's daughter, who is a third woman of defiance. Yes, because it says in verse 6, she had compassion on him yes. and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. One of the Hebrews' children. So she children. knew that she was defying. She knew. This person was meant to be assassinated. Right. Because her that dad is, did so. I got. I got to admit. I mean, it, I. I don't want to overplay this because modern racial consciousness is different than in the ancient world. Yeah. Having said that, and this, this, this is this is to name the the heart of the resistance from uh, white folk to liberation theology is mm-hmm. if the black folk identify with the Exodus people of God, that means oh, yeah. me and my kin are the Egyptians. Well, and that's hard yeah. news to hear. That's hard, yeah. But then, but that is, but the hope comes when you name what's the what's real, right? Right. And and all of a sudden, I mean, maybe if you if you read the text, you're you got to go looking for God, but you also got to look for yourself. 
And the invitation is, if I am in a place of power and privilege, Pharaoh's daughter needs to be Pharaoh's my inspiration. That's so it. Sounds like you thought – I thought of the same thing because we had a break. You know, We had some technical difficulties. Our listeners don't know that, but I'm going to tell them now that we had to kind of stop and come back. And that came to me between our first and second mm-hmm. <laughs> recording sessions because I kind of – and probably it's just a, a, a preacher's obsession with threes, right? But I was kind of looking for a third in a weird Where way, you know? <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> just rhythmically, you know, right, right, and all, and it just dawned on me. The same thing dawned on me, Sophia. I'm, I, I feel better that you saw it. it makes me oh, not yeah. feel like I'm oh, just yeah. r- trying to find. Oh, where's the good white person? <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but but that is that speaks to our times and it yes. speaks to human nature. Yes, there is always someone willing yeah. to stand up. And notice, she alone cannot change no. the laws of her husband. No. But she can defy. She can defy them. She can defy within them. her sphere of, of power and influence. So it's no telling what the interactions were like oh. with Daddy after this. You know, Pharaoh's daughter has. You know, I, I'm trying it's to perfect. do this, and then here you bring what? What? You know. So it's no telling what their conversations became. So she afterwards. names him, right? She names him yeah. an Egyptian name. Moses an is an Egyptian name. name. Yes, and and then. This Hebrew woman's nursing him, but under her protection. Under her protection. And so she's probably visiting or vice versa. That bringing, you know, there's this. Until he's weaned, he's living in both communities. He's living in both communities and he is nurtured by both communities. Yeah. That's an important part of the narrative that we often forget. We think of him as a Hebrew leading out, leading out the Hebrews, but he's a Hebrew who, who, who was raised in the household. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Leading the people out. There's a different kind of dynamic going on here. It, this, 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 this is. I don't want to make too much of it, but but he's got the best of both worlds. Mm-hmm. He's got the best that science has to offer because the Egyptians were known for their science and their knowledge and their mathematics and their you know whatever whatever. And he's got the best that his people have to offer, especially their God. And to make a choice for the Hebrew God after being raised in the house where there was so much idolatry mm-hmm. is an amazing kind of a thing. And so holy defiance would be my first sermon title. You know, I love it. Holy defiance. And then there, there's a, there's a thing here that goes on as you look at the progression from where we began our reading, uh, you know, they got nervous about the people multiplying and then they said, well, let's kind of isolate them. And then, okay, we better deal shrewdly with them. And then they kept uh, uh, oppressing them harder and harder. And I, I see this whole issue of creeping captivity. Those who are captives don't often become that right out the chute because if you came and just put the shackles on them and said, okay, now you're mine, they might just rebel and throw overthrow the thing. And you know, that wouldn't happen necessarily. And this could have been over generations. This could have been decades and years. A Pharaoh arises who knows not Joseph. Well, Joseph only lived so many years and that Pharaoh only knew so many years. Maybe it's, maybe it's next Pharaoh knows, but by about the third one, we're out of here. So, so you've got this creeping captivity and and to to not like I said to not overplay it, but in our lives spiritually, we are taken captive by the things that we give ourselves over to, and uh, a little, and then a little more, 
and then a little more. And before you know it, you are completely in over your head. And I think anyone who's ever fallen into sin of any kind knows that this is pretty, pretty true here. Uh, a little bit and then a little bit more and, well, this won't hurt. And then, I, well, nobody saw, you know, before you know it, you, you've been taken over by the thing that you give yourself into in, in captivities. So uh, creeping captivity is, is kind of a, I would take that as a, as a spiritual formation kind of a lesson. It could also be that this Pharaoh said, let's just kind of put a fence around, restrict them. Let's, let's bracket them so that they're, you know, so they're not. And then later some advisors say, no, we didn't do enough. And then those we didn't do. Yeah. So we don't know how this all happened, how many years it was, but it, I think it crept up on folks. Yeah. And since Pharaoh is really a title, Yes. Um, you would say it's like saying, you know, the king or the president the king, or the, the, king or you the know, president or the whomever, you know, and it, it's the president, even if it's a different man 20 years right. later doing it. Yes. So it's it's helpful for me to suddenly even just to see when you call it creeping captivity. Yes. To um, that this captivity is being placed on the people. But also then it's just a whole system of captivity to which yes. the powerful people are themselves captive mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, to this new system that seems then unchangeable. Like how could and we possibly we let them go worship yeah. for three days because our whole society is built on their labor? They're free labor. Yep. Yep. They're free labor. Yeah. Well, I, I could see a – Maybe you're pitching a different sermon, but I could see the first and second half of a sermon here. The first half is the creeping captivity mm -hmm. because I mean, I'm thinking of a Lowry loop here where it's getting worse and yeah, worse. Yeah, it's getting worse. Yeah. And, you and, and encourage an audience to see it from both sides, to see, to see the- How they get there. Yeah. To see the kind of gradual way that oppressive systems emerge from the point of view of the, both oppressor and oppressed. Yeah. And then to turn it around, and that sets up then the good news of this holy defiance, right? Mm -hmm. The first moment of holy defiance is when it gets to the place where it's no longer subtle oppression, but straightforward murder, right? Yeah. Yeah. There's nothing yeah, yeah, that yeah. can be explained away as an economic can't necessity. Away, can't yeah. be done away with, yeah. There's this first act of defiance, and then a, and then a, and that's then confirmed by divine action who gives them children. Right. And then this next act of defiance from this Levite woman whose name we don't know, but we'll just call her the Levite woman. And then the daughter of Pharaoh. Interestingly, these two prominent mm -hmm. women in the story, the very mother of Moses and the, the arrogant mother of Moses. Don't have, don't have names. Don't have their names. Yeah. Although interestingly important in a way, because then it identifies them with the house of Levi and the house yes. of Pharaoh, the which house is, of Pharaoh. which is the real, this is the real battle has begun now. Right. But we get the names of the housewives. The midwives. Yeah. We get their names. And um, the, the daughter, the, the uh, uh, Moses, sister, we know later who she is. If this is the same sister. You know, infant mortality is kind of high back then. We don't know if right. it's the same child or not. But we, we, we don't know the name of the sister. We, we don't, the women's names are not given to us. It's not important. Yeah. What they did was important. So, yeah, holy defiance and, 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 a, and a creeping ca captivity and, and, and subverting or turning that upside down um, and how God did that. Using ordinary women. They're all at the bottom of their totem poles. 
That's right. You're right. Vis-a-vis each other, there's a rise. So it's, I mean, midwives would be serving, servants, not slaves, but servants of the Hebrew mothers, Hebrew women. And so then you get the Hebrew mother and then you get Pharaoh's daughter. So it's kind of moving up the totem pole of women Mm -hmm. in general. Mm -hmm. But then within each of their spheres, they're at the bottom. That's right. They're the bottom of their own totem pole. So the little things... Yeah, there it is again. There we are with the trickster again. The little things can fail the mighty. And that little thing actually could be woven into the sermon, the first half, that use it negatively. It's the little things. Mm-hmm. It's those little choices mm-hmm. that lead to this creeping captivity. It goes by in a few verses here. Yeah. This could have been a centuries-long development. of. But you see, you see it building. Little choices. Exactly. But each, I mean, I remember seeing it was a, a little Chinese proverb. It says no snowflake in an avalanche uh, thinks it's guilty or something like that. <laughs> yeah, something like that. <laughs> <laughs> like, but no individual. I mean, that in a way. I mean, it's it's like there's all these videos running around trying to explain to white people how systemic racism works and stuff. I'm like, all you need is just that little mm-hmm. proverb. It's a fortune cookie, man. Right, like that's right. all you yeah, need. Yeah, of yeah. course. My little snowflake is not responsible for the avalanche. It isn't. That's true. But that doesn't mean I'm not part of the avalanche. You were rolled into it. Yeah. (laughs) I'm still part of it. That's it. That's it. And there's hope there. There's hope there. I think this is a this is a powerful sermon merge, and I might try to work this one out. (laughs) Yeah. I like the little things, how they the little things could be the all those little choices that are made. Right. And then all of a sudden little things become, but God uses it's precisely little things that God uses to, to turn it over. Yeah. To redeem it. Wow. And then the, 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 the issue of fear hmm. is another one I can't escape in this passage. And because I've read Jesus and the disinherited a number of times, yeah, uh, he talks about how fear is usually the root of yep. whatever it go, you know, whatever is going wrong between hate, hate is a secondary thing. And hate, hate, is hate comes one. out of hate comes out of, Anger and the anger comes from the fear. The fear is right. at the root of it all. Yep. And the fear and the the fear and the sense of powerlessness. Hmm. Because we've got to do something with them, or one day they may fight against us. And so there's it's it's kind of a, a feeling of losing power mm-hmm. if these people have any power, then I won't have power. Yeah. You know? Threat. So there are going to be so many of them, if they side with our enemies, we'll lose. So it's a fear of losing power and control that that fuels this entire madness. Yeah, and it's precisely when you're afraid that you will then kick in to emotional reasoning. Left and right brain aren't talking to each other. And mm-hmm. <laughs> right brain just says, I'm afraid. Left brain... Mm-hmm. Give me a solution, right? And so left brain just kicks in and doesn't do any kind of moral awareness and just says, okay, well, if we enslave them, then they can't threaten. You know, like it just, yeah, yeah. I mean, it even says, let us deal shrewdly with them, right? So it's like, let's let's, be be careful. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's this, um, I think that fear and, and if that, that's, you know, that could be a separate sermon or it could be precisely the theme. Yeah. Although it could be referenced when you speak of the creeping captivity what motivates and then the heroism the courage then of the holy Mm -hmm. defiant they faced their fear you've got this triad of women you know and they have a and they had much 
the fear that the pharaohs had was mm-hmm. of a perceived threat. Mm-hmm. The fear that the women had was a legitimate of one. A real threat. <laughs> if I'm caught, I could be harmed. Yeah. Or I could be killed. Yeah. But but this fear thing, I also think that if we begin to look at the role that fear plays as a motivator, as a negative motivator in many of our lives, for the people who overwork, mm. they fear that they won't have enough. For the people who are pleasers, they fear that people won't like them. You know, so what are these multiple fears that often play into the way we live our lives? And, 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 and God did not come to give us a spirit of fear. Yeah. Oh, that's good. And, and then, of course, I'm guessing you're, this is all a setup for the, the, the midwives because mm. they feared mm-hmm. God, right? They fear so God. It's not in a way. It's this like the 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 solution. Just like the oh, you you want me to throw him in the river? I'll throw him in the river. The solution to fear is fear. It's yeah. fearing the right one, the fearing one true right God. One. And when you fear Misplaced the one true God, you don't have to fear yeah. anybody at all. Don't fear anybody at all. You, you've seen you've seen my graduation robe, and mm-hmm. I have on one side uh, the school that I went to was United. And the symbol of United is a cross with chains being broken off of it. It's called, it's for setting the captives free. That's the, one of their mottos. On the other lapel, we put, because we were uh, 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 an Afri- African-centered cohort, uh, and we studied African thought and, and lifestyle and, and community development and all that kind of stuff, we put the Jinyame, which is a, a con symbol coming from West Africa. And uh, I, I don't even know how to describe it for your listeners, but just look for Jinyame. G-Y-E is one word. And then N-Y-A-M-E. And Inyame is one of the names of God in uh, the Akan language. And, you know, we say God and, and, and um, they say Inyame. So, so G-Nyame, accept God. And the, the, the phrase is completed by saying, fear no one but God. Ah, and so on a lot of religious uh, clerical robes and whatever it is, that, that's, that, that symbol has been appropriated. It's part of the folk culture there, but it has been appropriated by the church uh, to, to remind us the only one we need to fear is God. Fear not the person who can kill your body and they don't have anything else they can, they can do to you. But fear the one who has power over body and soul. You know, this goes right back to scripture. But my graduation robes, you know, when I'm, when I'm in the line of march, or used to be, because I'm retired now, praise be to God. On one side, <laughs> it's the cross with the, with the chains coming out, setting the caps of, captives free. And on the other side is the genuine, which is fear no one but God. And they yeah, were, well, that'd be worth worth looking up that image. I mean, that could be used right in a sermon, you know, as a kind of oh yeah, oh yeah, as the kind of motto. Um, oh, that's really powerful. Yeah, fear no one except God. G nyame. Am I saying nyame? Nyame. Nyame. G nyame. Except God. Fear yeah. nobody but that'd God. Be, that'd be a good sermon title too. Like, oh What's yeah. That? Come on, <laughs> yeah. <and> find out. <laughs> um, Friday. <laughs> I, I, I'm a I'm a fan of obscure titles. Um, so what does that mean? Well, you'll find out. You know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh man, that's really good. Thank you so much for for uh, for all that you provided uh, 
uh, this hour. It's been really great. You said you had a little something that you might want to end oh, with a oh, prayer. Oh, 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 is that yes, handy or indeed? Uh, this is, these are some contemporary words, and I I hope I, there's no problem with with them being read on online. But they were um, written for use in contemporary worship services when this text is being used. And uh, very simple. And I close with these words: God, teach us the ancient stories that show us how to trust you, even in the most difficult of circumstances. Remind us of the many ways that you have used both the high and the mighty and the humble and least likely to carry out your perfect will. And then remind us that we are together on this journey as we struggle to trust you more. Amen. Amen. That was beautiful. That was Thank you. Per- perfect ending and really fit with where our sermon ideas Landed, ended yes. up. Yeah, that's really great. Thanks for that. Well, thanks so much uh, for giving uh, an hour or more of your time <laughs> to, uh, to this conversation, Sophia. And thanks so much uh, to all our listeners. As always, we appreciate you chiming in and passing the word around uh, any way that you can. Uh, thanks to uh, Todd and Eric for all their production work. I can't imagine doing this without them. Thanks for, to Tom Adamson for donating the theme music. And with that said, we say have a good preach and a great week. Bye-bye. <laughs>